Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Dr. Carol Silberberg. She's a consultation liaison psychiatrist living in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, I know Carol through Homeward Bound and a lot of the storytellers on the pod have been in various Homeward Bound cohorts, either HB5 like me and Carol or cohorts before us. And if you stay tuned, we'll also have some episodes with the newest cohort, HB6, so stay tuned for that. So anyway, so today we talk about a lot of topics, including her career, what drew her to medicine in the first place, choosing a path in life, how one transports a cello from Canada to Australia, doctors having orchestras, homeward bound, education in Australia, and gender balances in our respective fields, just to name a few of the topics that we cover. It's really hard to title these episodes sometimes because the blip of a title never really fully captures the whole episode. So I really enjoyed talking to Carol. It was great to get to know her better. We both contribute to another podcast called The Discomfort Zone, which is put on by participants from Homeward Bound Cohort Number 5, HB5. So we've, we've talked a little bit in crossing in those episodes, and, but it was really great to get to talk to Carol one-on-one. Yeah, so I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Okay, so I would like to start because I know almost nothing about what you do because just like the brief conversations we've had in the discomfort zone, like- Oh yes, of course, brief. yeah. Like I feel like we've not been on the same episode maybe more than like twice. <laughs> no, uh, I've, I, and I've uh, sort of lost the plot with that, you know, because of uh, pandemic. But, uh, sure, totally happens. I've missed a bunch because of field work, so it's all good. Um, but I would love if you could just maybe like give me, a, give me an intro to Carol. Tell me about yourself. Okay, well, hi, my name is Carol Silberberg. I work as a consultation liaison psychiatrist in a large public hospital in Melbourne, Australia. And consultation liaison psychiatry is where we see patients who are admitted for medical or surgical reasons and they happen to have a mental health problem or an emotional problem or perhaps no problem at all and the treating teams just get uncomfortable when they cry when they get bad news and then they say oh send in the psychiatrists and we have to go and say ah there's nothing wrong with them but uh, a lot of the work is, you know, for example, someone who has cancer and gets depressed or someone who gets delirious after an anesthetic for an operation or maybe even someone who has a pre-existing, for example, schizophrenia and has a heart attack and needs treatment, but they're for whatever, you know, don't, you know, don't believe that there's anything wrong with them or think that, you know, are influenced by delusions and think that it's the aliens that are squeezing their heart and don't want the doctors to come near them. So those are the sorts of things that I do. So it's fairly uh, diverse. (laughs) It's fairly diverse, and that's and that's why I love it. I you know I sort of went through different fields of uh, first medicine and then different specializations in psychiatry, and I I think it's because I have a short attention span, maybe. But in in CL psychiatry, we don't we don't own our patients as such, so we consult to other teams. So it's sort of like a bit, a bit like an emergency department where you have patients for a short period of time and then, you, and then they move on. So it's, uh, and it's, it's new every day. And even after more than a decade of doing this particular type of work, I still see things we go, hmm, never seen that one before. So it, I, I love that I'm always having to think on my toes 
and troubleshoot new situations. I just I just couldn't see myself like just seeing hearts every day or lungs every day or kidneys every day or cutting uh, someone's knee open every day. I, that, that, that wasn't for me. So Yeah, I agree. I also need variety in my life. So for like in my work situation too, I don't want to do the same thing every day. Yeah. I think yours is maybe a bit of an extreme example because you catch people like at all points of their lives, like you were saying, you know, after maybe getting some terrible news, it seems like you come in right at like a crutch situation. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, we do see people often at their most vulnerable times. And sometimes a lot of our work is either just providing them with support or providing education to other people in the hospital system about I guess, sort of demystifying what are normal uh, emotional reactions to bad things happening. And it's, you know, I mean, bad things do happen both in hospital and out of hospital. And part of my job is advocating about not pathologizing badness, but also, uh, you know, identifying and treating illnesses if they are present. So... It also seems really important because mental health is such a struggle in the best of times. I feel like that, you know, it's going to be triply or whatever is hard in the worst of times. It, it is. And it, I think that things have come a long way in terms of destigmatization, not, not all the way, not by any stretch of the imagination, but Yes, it's, it seems like often it's uh, an additional blow if someone has uh, a lot of things going on. But what we're seeing increasingly is that there's a lot of evidence for like a, a bi-directional relationship between mental and physical health. So we know that on a biological basis, there's a lot of physical things that happen that can directly or indirectly cause depression or mania or whatever it might be. And And as well, there are mental health conditions that can lead either directly or indirectly to Uh, physical things going on so it's partly trying to unpin some of those relationships and look at how we can help yeah it seems really important um what drew you to this field in the first place uh to 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 medicine or to psychiatry let's start with medicine maybe Uh, to medicine, I I always wanted to do medicine. Ever since I was a little girl, I had one of those um, you know Fisher Price doctor plastic doctor's kits when I was growing up, and used to like to play around with that. And I I think I wanted to do it even before I realized fully what it was. And yeah, no, I I always wanted to do it, and and was always interested in science and did well, did well in science throughout school. And then when I was in junior high, I actually got quite into music and went very much down a music path and eventually went on to a performing arts high school. So I was doing two tracks. I was doing both arts and science. And then, and I, and I loved music. And then it came down to university, getting close to university applications. And I suppose I had to make a decision. I mean, I felt in retrospect, I probably didn't have to be as black and white as what I sought at the time. But at the time, I felt I had to make a decision about, you know, do I go down the science path? Or do I go down the the arts path? And I had to do, I suppose, a fairly frank and honest self assessment of where my talents truly lay. And while I was talented at music, I play I play cello. Um, I was not, um, you know, it was always going to be, I suppose, a bit of a, a bit of a slog trying to make a living as a as a musician, 
whereas science and medicine offered, I think, a much more secure pathway to a, to a career. So I guess it was a fairly hard-headed decision to go down that path. But I, you know, I left my, I, I quite literally walked away from music from 20 years, which is quite sad in retrospect, partly because I, you know, I moved, I moved cities, I went into a residence hall in, in university, you know, tiny little room, can't really bring a big old cello with me, didn't really have time for it anyhow. And I always wanted to uh, bring it back and get back into it. And I just never really had the time. It's, it takes a long time to get into, you know, do medicine and then subspecialize, et cetera. And, you know, and, and then I, in the course of that, ended up moving to Australia, which meant that I was geographically quite distant from my dear cello. And I know I could have bought one in Australia, but I was very attached to the one that I grew up playing. And I really wanted to bring it back to Australia with me. So I actually, I actually did that many many years later and not so long ago it was actually probably about 10 years ago I brought my cello back to Australia I had to buy it a ticket on an airplane it um and bring it on onto the into the plane with me and uh had it had had a ticket it was called cello Silverberg it got offered a meal it uh it had the window seat I wasn't <laughs> Uh, and it took them so long to actually get the cello into the seat that they managed to seat uh, an entire wheelchair basketball team on the play. So I got to pre-board as did the wheelchair basketball team because they, they, they asked me to, and they were all in their seats with their wheelchairs tucked away before they, the uh, ground crew could work out how to strap the cello in, which was, uh, and, 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 and then they were mocking me that they were all like, hey, look at us. We managed to get ourselves in here and look at you. So. Uh, this is a fun tangent. I liked this. <laughs> it's fun. Um, and uh, and luckily, and all, I didn't realize this initially, but all over the world, and certainly in Australia, there are doctors' orchestras. So I, these days, I actually play uh, a few times a year in the what's called uh, my orchestra is called Corpus Medicorum. And we're an orchestra made up of mainly doctors. There are some medical students. We do let in the odd psychologist. Uh, we've got a few professional musicians as well to fill the gaps. And for example, there don't seem to be any doctors in Melbourne who play trombone hypothetically or whatever it might be. And it's uh, everyone's really fantastically talented and we just have a blast. And there's, and there's like an Australian doctor's orchestra, there's a world doctor's orchestra. So they're all over the place. So as it turns out, what I was saying before, it didn't have to be as binary as yes, cello or no cello. Um, and I could have been doing it all along and it took me about 20 years to realize. That's really interesting. I suspect, first of all, I didn't know that there was such a thing as like doctors orchestras, which is awesome. And I suspect if you were to, in New Orleans, every, there's a lot of brass instrument players here, a lot of trombone players and tuba players and things like that. I suspect they would be heavy on that instead of like maybe less on the stringed instrument side around here, just because of I, I think so. I think Geographic distributions might uh -huh. uh, vary. Someone, someone could do a study looking at the geographical distribution of instrument playing based on area and profession. That would be cool. I'd be interested in that. <laughs> I would be too, but I guess that's just the, you know, the, so, the nerdiness speaking. Yeah, that's like science for fun, right? Like you don't maybe really learn anything, but it'd be cool to see. <laughs> you do, yeah. 
So anyhow, we, we digress though about how I ended up in this field of uh, consultation liaison psychiatry. So as I said, I always wanted to do medicine, but in North America, at least, you basically have to do a Bachelor of Science before, and I, and I grew up in Canada. So you have to do a Bachelor of Science before you do a um, get into medicine. So I started, uh, so I did a, a bachelor's in biology and specialized in human, um, in not in human behavior, in animal behavior, actually. And I did my sort of like uh, final paper in language acquisition in birds. So I suppose I had an early interest in behavioral science to a, to a degree. And then, and then during the course of my bachelor's degree, I had the opportunity to do a year exchange and I uh, did that in Sydney, Australia at University of New South Wales. So McGill University where I went had an exchange program with UNSW. So I took that opportunity and I, I've had long-standing connections with Australian that my grandmother is Australian, was Australian. And she met a Canadian when she was living in Sydney a long time ago and they married and he eventually took her back to Canada with him. So that's how I ended up having an Australian grandmother in Canada. But we traveled with my family to Australia when I was in high school. I'm like, oh, I like this place. I'm going to move there one day. And my family said, yeah, yeah, whatever. And so, but I sort of saw that year on exchange as my uh, test run really about whether or not I want to move there. And sure enough, I, I loved it. And I, uh, yeah, so when the time, when the time came to apply to medicine, so I, I had to, did a year and I didn't even want to leave Australia, but I had to go back and do the last semester back in Montreal. And I got back to like snowy winter, having come from sunny Sydney. And I went, there is another way to live. I have seen it. I don't have to shovel snow all the time. So I, uh, so the time came to apply to medicine and I did the, I did the MCATs and, uh, and I only applied to one, I only, I mean, I suppose I was a bit lucky, lucky in retrospect, but I only applied to City, Sydney Uni because I was really single-minded about this is where they wanted to go. They had just started a graduate medical program. You, it used to be undergrad in, in Australia. So you just go in straight out of high school. And then they switched to a graduate program. So I was really well placed having just done my bachelor's degree to get into this program. So I applied and got in and moved. And I suppose the rest was history as far as you know, medicine. And, and then you sort of go through medicine and you have to pick a specialty within medicine. So I was always, and psychiatry was always, uh, you know, in, probably in the top three for me. I was, you know, it was, it was psychiatry, neurology, uh, endocrinology, which is sort of hormone stuff and oncology. Those were always my, the big ones I was interested in. You sort of go through other terms and you just basically strike that. I was like, yep, nope, there goes urology or no thank you surgery or whatever. And, and but either, even the areas that I thought I liked, you know, when you're actually in it working, you see aspects of it, then you say, mm, maybe that's not for me. But I also got the opportunity to do as a sort of you know junior doctor, a few terms in psychiatry, which confirmed to me that that was what I wanted to do, and I really loved the the holistic aspect of it. And I love I love people's stories, as do you, uh, doing this podcast, obviously. But just talking to people and engaging with people as people, and not just as a as a lung or as a knee or whatever it might be, really appealed to me. So uh, again, you know you. You know, do all your 
prerequisites and time comes to apply to psychiatry and and there, there I was. So I did my psychiatry training and I moved from Sydney to Melbourne to do my psychiatry training at a hospital that uh, does a lot, uh, has a quite a big focus on psychotherapy and psychodynamic understandings of patients, which uh, in the public hospital system in Australia, at least, is actually quite rare. There's a quite often a big biological focus on, you know, sort of uh, on medication and stuff like that, rather than psychodynamic understandings of people. And so I, I, I got quite lucky with my, my hospital choice and then fell into this area of medicine because I, I suppose going into psychiatry, again, although I was very committed to it, it was a regret to me having to sort of put down the stethoscope to, to a degree and, you know, leave that hands-on healing. I'm going to, I'm going to save your life. And I suppose I may, maybe one could argue I'm doing that in a different way, but, uh, you know, there is something about, you know, you know, you get a bit of an adrenaline rush from actually doing that, that hands-on stuff, which, and so working in consultation liaison psychiatry, where I'm actually in the hospitals with my other medical colleagues, you know, the cardiologists and the neurologists and the surgeons and whoever it might be, as opposed to in a room with a couch and a and, and patient is, um, means that I'm sort of back in it. So I, I've come full circle in a way. It sounds like the role that you're in sort of like the happy medium between the two worlds, you know, you get, it is, I, I jokingly call it for the medical, cause we get, we're tra- we're teaching hospitals. So we get a lot of medical students and I call it the gateway drug to psychiatry because it does uh, bridge that gap between the, you know, psychiatry, which can, it still has a lot of stigma, including even within medicine and still is quite mysterious or frightening to some people and so we are the you know we we are the friendly face of psychiatry in in the hospital and and the ambassadors for our discipline in a way for a lot of people who wouldn't ever set foot in the psych wards i i feel like there's a few categories of maybe like mental health professionals like there's psychiatrists there's psychologists there's counselors like I don't really know how they all differ. Can, can you explain that to me, maybe? Uh, yes, and I, I mean, I think some there might be regional differences. Uh, broadly, say psychiatrists are medically trained, so we're all doctors who have done done f- further subspecialty training in looking specifically at the mind, the brain psychology, behavioral medicine, psychodynamics, as well as all the, I guess, the biological stuff about the psychiatric medications and those sorts of disorders. So we're, we're trained both in the medicine aspect as well as the, the psychology aspect and the behavioral aspects and the, and the psychosocial stuff as well, because there's a lot of psychosocial, socioeconomic uh, determinants of mental health and often our patients are very significantly disadvantaged. So that's, that's what we do. That's our training and background. So we can prescribe medication. We, can under, we have a greater understanding, as I was saying before about the uh, the medical underpinnings as well. So someone might present as 
manic, but maybe actually maybe it's a thyroid condition that is actually driving this, or maybe they've been given some medications by, you know, maybe they've been given some steroids to suppress the brain tumor that they've got and then their behavior changes. So we're able to actually say, hang on, we, you know, so we have that knowledge about those aspects of the biology and the pharmacology, as well as the, the psychology. Uh, psychologists are, are also very highly trained, but they haven't done medical degrees. So they've focused more on the, obviously the psychology of it and the behavioral stuff. And, the, and they do entirely talking type therapies, whereas psychiatrists can do both talking type therapies as well as medication type treatments. So I suppose we're, we're a bit broad in, broader in our training, but again, and it, and it comes down to systemic differences, which are going to, you know, differ state to state here in Australia. And they, I'm sure they do in the US where you are and country to country as well. But uh, while we may have the training to do the psycho, so even though I'm trained a lot in psychological interventions, the 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 nature of my job is that I um I don't tend to do like the long term psychological stuff because I don't have the time. My patients come and go. I might do very brief supportive type stuff or um, things like that. Whereas psychologists would do more of the longer term type things often, or sometimes they do short term stuff, but not um, in the same way. And counselors, again, counselor is a very uh, amorphous and undefined term the world over. And basically anyone can put up a shingle and call themselves a counselor. So there's not really any uh, necessary training or background. You know, if you, Rachel, if you decided that you want to be a counselor, you could literally just say, I'm a counselor and put up. A, so, I mean, Sometimes people call themselves a counselor and they do actually have a lot of training or they might be a psychologist in background or they might be a social worker in background or various other disciplines, but they are not necessarily, um, it could also just be, you know, like Joe from down the street has decided that they also want to be a counselor. So you, it's a bit more uh, hit and miss as to the background and training and focus and what you might get. That was really helpful. Thank you. Cause I'm so far removed from like any medical field that I'm just like, these are long words that I don't really know what they mean necessarily. Uh, which makes I am happy kind to of try dumb, and demystify it. Yeah. No, so that was, not, that was really helpful. Not a problem. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not at all dumb anyhow, because a lot of people, including even within medicine would sort of say, Oh, wait a second. How are you different from a psychologist? So we, yeah, we not infrequently have to explain this. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm going to come up with more creative questions then. Um, <laughs> I want to go back to the cello thing for a second, because I found in all of my conversations that there tends to be a very strong, like, scientific drive and artistic streak in the same, that they seem to sort of coexist or, like, feed each other. Um, and I just thought that that was cool that you had, like, you know, a musical streak and a science streak. And I just thought that was cool, really. It is cool. And I, th I mean, I think that there are a lot of, um, you know, probably neurobiological underpinnings to it. And there's, you know, there's a lot of studies that uh, look at the, the links between uh, 
creativity and science, and I can't really quote the science at you. I'd have to get back to you on that. But uh, there, there are a lot of links. I don't, I don't think it's coincidence that so many people who have uh, science backgrounds also have very strong um, artistic streaks. I mean, you, you, you would have seen from, for example, like the the Homer Bound cohort, how many talented artists there are, people doing craft or various other things as well. So. I, I think that there is a very strong relationship and it's not, um, it doesn't come purely down to sort of, you know, temperament, I think it's, or, or desire. I think that there is probably something uh, in the brain that makes these links. And as I said, some of you can probably find an expert to interview next time around who maybe knows more about these things than I do, but I, I definitely think it's there. That's a good episode idea. I'll look into this more. Yeah. Cause <laughs> I mean, I maybe naively thought that that people kind of picked one before I started doing this or before I started meeting people outside of my little bubble here in, you know, South Louisiana. Um, and I'm yeah, it's very common. It's weirder when there isn't both, I feel like at this point. <laughs> Some kind of creative outlet to go with, you know, the like rigorous science time too. Um well, I mean, I think I think everyone has an outlet or and needs an outlet, and sometimes you need to do a bit of digging before people will uh, tell you what their outlet is. But I think it's um it's quite common, I mean, and obviously there's a lot of people who have uh, you know ex you know very high degrees of creativity, be it musical or visual arts or whatever it might be, who don't have a science background as well. So it's obviously not our soul preserve, but um, I think and particularly yeah, and since the pandemic, I mean, there's been, I think a burgeoning of uh, creativity and uh, expanding perhaps interest that people might've had when they were younger and uh, getting back into those things when they've had more time or have been more home-based and doing a bit more of that. That's a very good point because it just so happens that the people I talk to regularly are scientists or in, you know, a STEM field, because that's just my bubble. Um, but you're probably right. That's not just in that. It's probably most people. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. it is most people. But uh, again, yeah. you know, I mean, and, and I only see, you know, by and large, the medical cohort. But so there's obviously a lot of talent within the medical cohort. And I see it in the orchestra. Yeah, there was actually, I, I actually just... We've got whole orchestras and we just had, um, I think it was in the uh, the medical journal of Australia. I should, I should know now because I was just featured in this and I just got an email about it uh, yesterday, but they did a call out for people, for doctors to be featured. Okay, so it's the, oh, it's the Australian Medical Association's um, Victorian Branches magazine but they did a call out for people doing art during the pandemic and wanted people to do submissions and they got inundated by submissions of what people have been doing during the um, not just during the pandemic but uh, pandemic themed stuff so there was people submitting you know like cartoons paintings photography dances and I actually have another artistic talent not uh, which I, I do ceramics as well so I sent in some photos of some uh, some vases that I had done. So, uh, but but it was uh, jewelry making. That I'm sorry, I'm just I'm just looking at them right now. What people have submitted. So, there people people are really talented, and I think that there's been a whole lot of stuff going on in the pandemic. 
it's a silver lining of this pandemic, I suppose, is people finding these new interests or rediscovering old interests they didn't have time for or make time for in the past. Silver lining and I'll take it. Yeah. What have you been doing? Well, uh, I have been reading a lot. That's not a creative thing, but it is a thing I really enjoy because um, I'm not generating anything. It's just a, it's a happy space for me to bump into, I guess. Uh, I started quilting. Oh, wow. Um, Amazing. I started that like, I don't know, pre-pandemic, but only barely. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah. Uh, I've played a little bit of music. It's been hard the last couple of months to do anything really besides just exist. So, uh, yeah. you know, not a whole lot going on right now, except just existing. Um, but that's, there's nothing wrong with just existing. Yeah. So. Getting my work done, feeding myself, done. keeping the house clean. And that's about the baseline. <laughs> yeah. So it's fine. It'll turn around at some point here. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I've been doing. How'd you hear about Homeward Bound? Is it because, I mean, I know it's like based in Melbourne, so I don't know if you heard it about there, like word of mouth, because it seems like most people uh, hear about word of mouth. It was, it was word of mouth. So a, um, a very close friend of mine, uh, who's also a psychiatrist, mentioned it to me and she hadn't done it herself but she mentioned another who I also who she's friends with who I also know a little bit who was part of HB3 I believe um, and so she said hey did you know that uh, Anita did this thing and so you should you should look into it and I and I did and the rest is history so to speak as far as uh, applying and getting in so it was, I mean, it seemed like a, an amazing thing. It, it coincided, I, I mean, I have, I, I do consultation liaison psychiatry and I'm, I'm now the director of my department and have been for probably, I think I got this in 2017. I got the, I'm just trying, dating it to when I got, I got pregnant and got the director job at the same time. And uh, I, uh, and medicine is very good at teaching you a lot of things. It's not so good about uh, teaching leadership, I suppose. And it's a lot of, um, so there's a lot of, you know, and there, and there are a lot of very skilled and natural leaders within medicine, but, uh, but it, it doesn't specifically get taught at any stage. I mean, there's, there's modules, but a lot of them just sort of pay lip service to, oh, we better teach these people how to like be leaders given that they are going to be uh, in charge of stuff at some stage. But uh, it's it's often fairly basic, and so uh, particularly since I've been in the director role, I've been I've I've done a couple of different leadership type programs, and I was looking for something, I guess I guess a bit broader than within the medical sphere. So homeward bound aligned quite well, given that it was still STEM focused. Uh, but also focused on women, which is good because I one of my uh, things is, I suppose, trying to help women advance within medicine and trying to break down some of the, uh, the sexism and patriarchy that is still pretty rife within medicine. 
so so Homer band aligned very well with what what I want to do and you know and again I've given that I'm now the director of my department and I and I love my clinical work uh, but I've sort of, I guess, hit, hit the top as far as where I can go in my field, unless I want to become the director of the whole service, which quite frankly, I don't, because that would, by definition, take me away from the clinical work that I'm, that I really love and that I thrive on. So I guess partly I thought Homer Ben could expand my horizons in, in circles and make me see about things that I could possibly do, uh, in addition to my clinical work that were outside of the medical sphere. So. That's interesting. It's parallel to the reason I applied because there really isn't any leadership or communication training in the natural sciences, or at least not when I was in school. There, that may be different now, or maybe only different in a few places now. And so that was what drew me to it. I was looking for something like that because, I mean, I knew at some point that I was going to want to stop doing field work. I didn't know when, I still don't know when necessarily, but like at some point, I mean, I'm not going to do field work forever and I need some skills to, for whatever I'm going to do after that, you know, to like sort of parallel to what you're talking about, like move up a little bit, but not, I don't necessarily want to be like in charge of all the things. Cause that seems like a lot. And like, you never get to go on the field. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, so that's a, was, a very good parallel. Yeah. So it was like a, I don't know, something that I thought would be really helpful. And so far I have found it to be very helpful um, over the last year plus. Yes. And it's, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different leadership courses out there and this is one of many, I suppose, but I, I liked the, the focus on women's experience and that uh, the, the gender aspect. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, I mean, it's still, we're still got a, a long way to go, I would say in medicine, probably in your field as well. It's, it's interesting. I mean, my, my year was the, uh, at, at Sydney Uni where, where I went to medicine, they, they told us that the, the first day that we were the first year where, uh, women outnumbered men in the, in the intake which was which is good, but I th I think the problem is that once you get uh, further advanced in your career, a lot of women end up working part time because they uh, you know choose to. I mean, we we it is quite um, in in most fields in medicine, it is possible at least in Australia. I'm not sure how it's structured in the U.S., but in Australia, it is it is possible to structure your career and your work and work part time so that you can spend a bit more time with your kids. Uh, but what it also means is that women are underrepresented in you know, the committees that count, shall we say, and the, the, those decision-making spaces. And so part of what I've been trying to do is trying to, I, I suppose when I have a bit more time is join some of those committees and try and uh, make them see you know like look at adopting more family friendly policies like you know like can we please not have this meeting from 5 till 6 p.m when i'm trying to give the kids their dinner and bath and get ready for bed it's not a good you know it's not family friendly time you know we're all we're all paid by the hospital we should all be here during the during working hours why can't we meet at lunchtime so those sorts of things I think have traditionally been barriers to women taking on more leadership roles and uh, 
I think something that um, we need to do, we need to do better in medicine. I, I mean, there, there are obviously a lot of, you know, very, uh, you know, intelligent and excellent leaders in, in medicine where I am and the world over, but I still think that there's a, you know, we are still underrepresented and underrepresented rather. And in Australia, it's, there's still very much a, a boys club and you probably haven't been getting the news of what's been happening in Australia about what's been going on in our parliament here, but there's been a number of, uh, uh, sexual assaults and and rapes of parliamentary staffers, and then our attorney general has just been accused of uh, a rape from from when he was uh, before before he even went into politics, and it's triggered, uh, I suppose, and what I'm hoping will be uh, the start of a change. So there was a there's a countrywide march for justice it was called on monday of this week where um trying to get some changes within parliament but broad, more broadly within the community and there's just a sense there's a very strong particularly in the the higher you know sort of middle and upper classes here there's a lot of uh, private school networks that still exist and that i think continues to foster the the old boys club i come I come from Canada where public school, which I went through was very much the norm. And it's very strange for, to me coming as an outsider into Australia, although I've been here for a very long time, uh, seeing how, you know, in primary school, it's okay. But once you get to the high school levels, how uh, I suppose, underfunded in many areas the public school system is compared to the private school and there's a perception and it's hard to know whether or not it's real or not that uh, you're never going to get anywhere unless you go to a really good private school and pay thirty thousand dollars a year for your child to go there and and i find it very confronting having young children of my own now and who are in the, the local public school uh, and looking around at the the local high schools, which, quite frankly, given that they they do publish, I suppose, league tables, so to speak, of how students perform, is that our local public high school does not perform very well comparatively to uh, many other schools. And it's my, I, I guess, my socialist impulse. Uh, is very challenged by the you know this uh moral dilemma to me of what what do i do when my kids get to the stage of going on to high school and do i send them to the local public um public school or do i stump up the money and send them to private school and the fact is is that i've dithered for so long that frankly i'm never going to get them into the good private schools anyhow because they haven't been waitlisted since birth etc and it's um yeah, it's it's quite uh, there, there's quite a significant gap here, I think, in in the education sector, and it's uh, hard to get your head around. But it, it it perpetuates that sense of entitlement. You know, you have these private school kids, particularly boys, who go through, and um, and a lot of the private schools here are affiliated with uh, religious. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Catholic schools, etc., and they're not so they're not so big on teaching things like uh, sexual education or consent or whatever it might be, and they're all very often co-ed, and it leads to I think attitudes in 
young boys that they can do what they like and girls better watch out. And that just gets perpetuated throughout the system. So I would like to change that. I don't know. I don't know yeah. how, but yeah. definitely needs changing. That's for sure. It absolutely needs changing. And so this this groundswell of this this march that happened on Monday, I I hope it's the start of something. But uh, I, I I went on the march. I did uh, dream luckily uh, my hospital's fairly inner city and the the march was just down the road from where where I work. So uh, I went with a number of colleagues. I hope that my employers are not listening to this when I say that we went at our lunch, uh, we went during our lunch break and we went down and went to the march for a while, which, uh, which, was, which was really good. And it was huge and there was great energy there. And um, I, I would like to think it's the start of something, but I, I did see some of the signs I saw was like, you know, my arms are tired from holding the sign since the 1960s. And Jeez, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Exactly. Oh man. So uh, it would be nice to see things change, but I think a lot of people, you know, my, you know, I mean, certainly, I've seen, I, you know, I've done marches like this since I was in high school, and obviously, people have been doing it since the '60s or uh, earlier than you know the suffragettes, etc. So from much earlier. So there certainly things have changed, but not enough. I'm very sorry to hear that the education system where you are sounds very similar to the education system where I am because our education system sucks. <laughs> mm. So that's, it's disappointing because I don't want anybody to have a system like we do. Um, education in Louisiana is very underfunded. And where, where I went to high school, there was like, you only went to the public high school unless you were rich. And then you went to the one private school and it was like, a you know, all girls and all boys school. And those are, those are the only options really. Um, and so then when I moved to a big city, I was like, what are all these magnet schools and all this other thing? And there's like school rivalries. I'm like, why are there so many schools? It's like a very weird thing. And I, I'm glad I don't have to worry about it because it's a lot. It is. It is. It is a lot. I mean, I said, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know exactly what it's like for you in um, Louisiana, but I, I, I mean, I think our schools are, you know, probably better than yours and better funded than yours because Australia is much has much more of a sort of, you know, social welfare, social justice system rather than the U.S., which is, you know, go go capitalism and you know, ride or die basically attitude. But um, so so I mean, our schools are funded, but I, I guess there is still, you know, there are still gaps. And, education and can always still be better, right? Education can always be better. And I mean, perhaps I have very rose-colored glasses about my experience of education in Canada, but I think that I had a really excellent education in Canada. And I think that they, they seem to do it very well. And again, it's been a long time since I've been through education in Canada, but um, yeah, I, th I think that they've got the balance right there. And I think it's only natural to want your kids to have a good education. You know, I think that's only fair. Uh, it why is. wouldn't and, you want and them that, to? <laughs> and I mean, and I mean, my kids, my kids are getting a great education at the moment in in the you mm -hmm. know, as I said, primary schools. Um, by and large, do very well. But I think that it's the the funding and all the investment goes into the the private schools. And getting back to the um, 
and again, it's it's so for the, just a, a little tie-in back to the orchestra thing is that when when we have to rehearse, we you know basically go wherever. So we've had rehearsals uh, in all sorts of places over over the years that I've been with the orchestras. But a few years ago, we had a rehearsal in one of the private boys' schools in in town here, and my jaw hit the floor. I, I mean, I've never, I'd never had any cause to go onto the grounds of a private school before. And when I got through the uh, the locked gates and onto the campus, and I mean, obviously it's beautiful and, you know, sort of very ye olde England in, in its uh, buildings and origins, but the resources, it's like, you know, like we were, we were in one of their music buildings and it was, you know, it was a very new acoustically designed rehearsal space with all the gadgets and bells and whistles. And I was like, holy fuck, oh, pardon, sorry, I don't, I don't know what the language <laughs> requirements are on your show, but um, I, I was absolutely gobsmacked by this place. I and and this is I mean I'm like obviously this is what the parents are paying their thirty thousand dollars per year or so to send their children there but I I have never encountered anything like that and just the the privilege of those kids I, it's no wonder the kids grow up feeling entitled if they are uh, you know surrounded by I mean you know obviously they're you know they're very lucky but I. And you know, I, I I found it very staggering, and it and it and it makes me think too of um. I mean, I I know that the school the schools do obviously try very hard to instill, I suppose, a a sense of community in their students, which is good. But I I guess to me maybe I have a, a very purist ideal of things, but I. It's to me, I, I would rather see them volunteering because they want to volunteer, not because they're told to volunteer. I mean, I, I only came to this realization very recently because I, I sit on interview panels at all sorts of levels throughout the, the hospital system. So from interns right through to people at director level positions, I've been on interview panels. So I see a lot of CVs and I've always been very mystified by the people, you know, a lot of people keep their high school experiences on their CVs. And, and I've always gone, what is, what is with this? Like, like, you know, get over yourself. Like, you know, you are, you're a doctor now. Like, we don't care where you went to high school. Um, and, you know, I mean, and I'm talking about people that like, I've seen people with like, you know, like associate professor in their titles, for example, flying and still having their high school stuff on the, like, I, I don't care that you were the ducks of your high school or that you were the captain of the rowing team or whatever it was like, just, just edit yourself, please. But what does um, that matter now? It doesn't. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what it matters now, because what, what I have realized in this, you know, and I've been doing this for years, and I've only realized in this past week when all these discussions about the privilege and the old boys network is that it is signaling to the other old boys on the interview panel, hey, look at the school, I went to your school too, I'm, I'm, one, of your, I'm one of your people, hire me. So that, that, I believe, is why it's being done. That's really... Uh, interesting isn't the right word for it. Upsetting, irritating, kind of makes Alarming. me mad. I don't yeah. Know. yeah, yeah, it makes me mad too. And I mean, I think it's, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I mean, that's what perpetuates these power structures that goes on, I think, throughout 
uh, the society, you know, in you know, certainly in uh, you know, pol, you know, like you know, politics, law here. I would say, um, you know, you know, med medicine. I, I mean, certainly, I sit on the panels like I, you know, I don't care about that sort of stuff. It's just you know, show me, you know, show me what you've done recently, but. Yeah, that's probably, I don't know if people are putting it on their resumes here or not, but like the, the question of like, where did you go to high school is really common around here. And maybe that's a lot of places, but I, I guess it is a sort of signal like, well, did you go to a good high school? Did you go to a crappy high school? Like, are maybe it's sort of like code of, are you worth my time or not? Almost. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not I, putting th my, I think it is. I'm not putting my high school on my resume. My high school was shitty. That's not going to, I don't want anybody to know where I went to high school. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm embarrassed for my education and I don't need you to know that. <laughs> I think, I mean, you know, you've, you've obviously done very, you know, you know, achieved a, a lot and. I may do. <laughs> it, do it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I Like, it just doesn't matter. And, yeah. and frankly, there's a lot of people who have achieved some amazing things without ever having finished school. True. So it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't really mean anything. I mean, people, people have talents in in all sorts of areas, and your schooling and background shouldn't matter. And I guess it's alarming to me that for so many people, it it does. In yeah. fact, it's someone someone just told me because I, I was just talking about this with uh, another another woman yesterday about this sort of like light bulb moment I had about these CVs. And she said that she she met someone, like she she went along to some sort of social engagement uh, where she was, you know, she was on a par with like, you know, like the, the man who brought along his wife and the wife introduced herself to the woman by saying she stuck out her hand to shake hands while uttering not her name, but she said her school that she went to. She's like, and I, w I will not name the school because uh, no one's going to know it anyhow. But I, you know, it, it's just and 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 they're you know and and both these women are in their sixties. Like you know, this is a long time ago. Like, but it's just it's such a you know just like a social signaling of you know I and I I as a you know. <laughs> uh you know someone who strongly believes in uh you know sort of social welfare states etc i find it very upsetting because you know a, a lot of our patients as i've said are very come from very deprived backgrounds and and that deprivation tends to perpetuate itself unless we can address some of these power structures and these power structures are driven by this social inequity and I would like to see it all torn down. Yeah, that would be awesome if you could tear it down. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, as far as my sphere of influence at the moment, it's within the medical uh, domain. And so that's why I've been working on, you know, within the areas that I can influence, trying to change some of the structures. And, you know, I mean, I can work on making my team very inclusive and family friendly, and then try and take that more broadly to within the hospital system or within other areas. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm no politician and won't ever be, but, um, you know, I think it's, it's going to take some strong people to get out and change the, the class systems that exist.
Yeah, but doing what you can where you are, like within your team and all that is going to set, maybe it'll set an example for a different department and or a department at a different hospital or facility or whatever. So I think that that's really awesome. One, just because the people in your team benefit, but setting that example is also really important. That's, that thank you. Awesome. I mean, that's, that is, that is what I hope. And it, it was in fact, you know, like all the, you know, like the women on my team. So, you know, when, when we went to the march, it was like the, uh, you know, like the, you know, the several layers below, you know, below me, so to speak, as far as the, the hierarchy as including medical students. Um, and we all just, you know, went down to the march and, and I think it was good at modeling that, you know, there are things worth standing up for and, uh, you know, skiving off work for, for a short period of time to, to go and uh, make your voice heard. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I have to admit that my, my work group is all women. And so, and I feel like the natural resources, it's definitely not true of all science, but the natural resources are a bit more gender equal than most sciences are. Um, and my work group being all women is like totally unheard of. Um, and so these things don't come into play on a day-to-day -day basis. And I take it for granted. I definitely take it for granted. Um, you're very lucky um, because as, as I said earlier, even, even though, you know, at the medical student level these days, you know, women and men are equally represented, uh, I very frequently find myself on committees or meetings or teams where I am the only woman and I often have to, uh, you know, speak up about things and, and often these things have been, you know, people don't, you know, people are worried it's going to affect their careers if they speak up about the, you know, the bullying or the sexual harassment or whatever it might be that happens. And I mean, I've always been, I suppose, the, the loud mouth. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm actually quite a, a quiet person by and large, I, I think, but, um, but I, but I also don't, hesitate to speak out on things if I see that something is happening. So I've, I, I feel like I, throughout my career, I've been pegged as the troublemaker because I, I do call it out. And in fact, in my, in my very first term as an intern, uh, I got taken aside by my, for my midterm evaluation in my very first, so I would have been about six weeks into practice uh, and my term supervisor, a, you know, white male of a certain age takes me aside and he sits me down he says carol you have what we call and then he used the air you know scare quotes attitude and you are never going to make it in medicine if you don't pull your head in and toe the line and learn to be more subservient you uh, actually, and I, I was like, excuse me, what do you mean by, it? can you please define subservient? He's like, oh, you know, follow around after me and, you know, ask me lots of questions. And I was like, I'm like, I'm not going to be your puppy dog. Like there are yeah, patients, yeah. there are sick patients on the ward I need to go and see. And I'm not going to like be your documentarian here in your clinic while you pontificate on things. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not going, I, I could give countless examples of 
these things and 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 often they they have been known about for a long time and no one has spoken up like i got again in my in my first term as a a registrar i, I don't know what the equivalent is in america maybe as a it's like the, it's the last stage before you're it's like it's when you join a specialty training program so you're already a doctor and you've got a few years of experience and then you go into a specialty training program before you eventually become a consultant psychiatrist uh so i was my first year as a registrar and my very first day one of the the more senior female registrars pulls me aside and says <clears throat> your supervisor is uh, so-and-so, and I should just warn you that he's a known sexual harasser. And I just thought you ought to know uh, that th this is just what he does. And um, so it's, you know, it's, it's known enough that you get a warning. And I mean, you know, to my, to my regret, it took me a number of months to actually speak up about it because I had moved to, uh, you know, like I'd moved to a new state and a new hospital to take up this job and I want to make a good impression. You know, it's all the stuff I was just saying before and you don't want to make waves, so to speak, on, you know, in your very first term. But um, after a couple of months, because we, you know, it's usually six month rotations and then you and then you move on. And I had had it and I sort of, we, we had a session with another, um, happened to be a sort of like a, a, a male supervisor who was charged with uh, doing, you know, sort of regular supportive sessions with the, the group of the first year registrars and my other co-registrars were all late. And he said to me, you know, how, how are you doing? And I just burst into tears and he's like, oh, what's happening? And I was like, oh, oh this is what's happening. And, and so we had a talk and I said, I'm like, please don't tell our you know our boss uh who's a, who's a who's a wonderful woman and very strong woman but i was just like you know like i don't want i don't want to i don't want to make trouble and um and he did tell her and so i you know, got called into her office and i sort of felt like i was like fronting up to the principal's office in school and you know that i was in trouble and she sat me down and she goes carol thank you so much for speaking up about this. We have known about this for years and no one has ever made a complaint about it. And we've not actually been able to address it because, and this is the way that the sort of the HR system is structured, the hospital is if no one complains, they can't actually do anything about it. And she's like, she's like, I would really, I know you haven't made a formal complaint, but I, I would really encourage you to do so. Can you, can you do this? And I, so I, I went through with it. Um, and it took, it actually took um, three years and uh, three, three separate, like, you know, me and two other female registrars who had also experienced this to, uh, you know, go through the, the formal processes. And we, um, but in, in the end, he left the hospital, which was uh, a really, a really good outcome. Like, you know, it's, a bit sad that it takes that long, but that's how long these HR process, you know, we had, you know, due process, la, 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 la. And, and I totally understand, you know, we don't, I mean, our attorney general at the moment is saying, oh, well, if we have a trial by media, then there's, you know, the rule of law is no longer valid and it's just going to, you know, society will disintegrate. Uh, and I mean, obviously that's a very long bow to draw, but I, I mean, I do understand that there need to be processes and reviews and people need to be able to, present their side as well. But I mean, it was very egregious what was going on and very obvious to everyone else. Um, 
and it just needs people to speak up and and you can i guess if anyone's listening to this you can make a change if you speak up about things uh and it it helps to have a service that is supportive and structures that are supportive obviously but uh, i would say if you're thinking about it do it yeah for sure it's hard to do um and it can be scary but it's definitely Mm. hopefully it will help down the road and that maybe somebody else after you won't be subjected to something like that exactly and i was um i mean i just had a similar conversation with the intern on my team we've we've finally after many years we've just been allocated an intern because an, another emblem of uh, the stigma against psychiatry and certainly in the australian system is that we have very rarely been afforded having junior medical staff on our teams uh it's just underfunded and unloved generally so we've had an intern and it's been her very first rotation of being an intern and she, it only came to our attention. I mean, it, this was her last week of the rotation uh, and it happened early on in the rotation, but she experienced uh, some bullying and she didn't want to say anything. And, and then when she actually did, um, so one of my other, one of my registrars noticed that she was upset after she got off the phone with someone and worked out what was happening. And so I then went to this person's boss and said, hey, you need to talk to this person about it. And and we, we just had a talk about, again, about the, you know, it, you need to speak up, you know, you won't be branded the troublemaker. We need to see these things and address them and try and make the system a happier place to work. Maybe I'm in la la land about oh we all we all be in a happy place to work, but I, I, I mean I do have a, a strong idealist tendencies, but I'm also a cynic. Um, but I think I think you still need to have, maintain some optimism that you can make changes. Otherwise, the status quo will never change. Yeah. Otherwise, it just feels futile, and then everything feels futile. So we need optimism, and any step in the right direction is a step in the right direction, even if it's a tiny step. Absolutely. So I just want to end on a fun question then. We already talked about your Uh, hobbies, so I won't ask about that. But um, what are you reading, if anything, right now? I am reading a book called Breasts and Eggs by um, a Japanese author who, uh, I'm sorry, I forget her name. And it's a novel about uh, sisters and one of their daughters set in Tokyo. And I'm, I'm only about uh, a quarter of the way into it, but uh, it's about a young woman who wants to be a writer and their, their relationship as sisters and their early upbringing. But basically her sister who works at a, in a bar has come to Tokyo to get breast augmentation surgery. And uh, that's, that's sort of where I'm at the moment at the moment in the book but it's really it's really good it's really evocative it's uh, especially given that no one can travel at the moment it really makes you feel like you're in Tokyo uh, because the descriptions are so fabulous about all the um, like the like the bathhouse or the the streets or the bars or whatever it might be and the the characters are really engaging so I'm enjoying it and I would recommend it yeah it sounds interesting I'm definitely going to look it up I ask that question because I always want book recommendations and, you know, people are reading different things all around the world. So, yep. Thank you for uh, being a very kind and understanding interviewer because I'm the one who's usually doing the interviews and it's rare for me to be 
interviewed. So uh, you put me at ease and got me talking. So you're obviously very skilled at this as well. And if you ever want to consider a career change. Uh... Uh, I think I'm just a little bit uh, personable one-on-one. If you get me more than a couple people, I'm just like, there's two people and talk to me. <laughs> like, uh, but thank I you for those you. nice words. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, this was fun. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And lovely to be able to chat one-on-one given that we've sort of seen each other in larger groups before. So yeah, no, I thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. It was nice to, yeah, again, get to chat one-on-one. Hey y'all, it's Rachel here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to have a quick reminder that if you or a friend or someone you think would be a good guest, if you have any people like that, let me know or send them my way in some way. Um, And how you can do that is you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. That's STEM with two M's. We also have a shiny new Twitter account for the podcast. So you can find the podcast on Twitter at Storytellers42. Yes, I'm a nerd. You can also email me, storytellersofstem at gmail.com. Or you can find me and everything else on my website, rachelvelani.com. So you have loads of ways to get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, follow all the storytellers on Twitter since they're mostly all there and just, you know, have a good day and thank you for listening.